If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Women Physicians Lead, hosted by Dr. Lisa Herbert, helps women physicians move from surviving to thriving in their personal and professional lives. Dr. Lisa shares leadership tips, burnout support, stress management strategies, and inspiration from women physicians who've made remarkable transitions into leadership roles. There's a fantastic episode that you should check out called Taking Care of Yourself During the Journey, about how women physicians can care for themselves while on their leadership journeys. Check out Women Physicians Lead on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome. This is Medicine in America, a podcast that will share the stories of physicians and other healthcare professionals who are changing the way they practice. We will hear what made them realize they had to reinvent and rethink their approach to treating patients. My name is Anthony Manson. I'm a 20-year-plus veteran of the healthcare industry, and I'm being joined today by my co-host and longtime friend and colleague, Todd Harrington. We have a really interesting guest today. His name is Dr. Stefan Quenzel. He is a psychiatrist in New York City, and he's in private practice, but he's also the medical director for the Louis Armstrong Center for Music and Medicine. And we're going to discuss how music can be a really effective tool in treating a lot of different disorders and get better outcomes. I'm here with my co-host, Todd Harrington. Hello, doctor. Hello. To get started, Dr. Quenzel, I was reading some of your information online, and you talk about a humanistic approach to medicine slash psychiatry. And I'm wondering, given all the science we have today, what you exactly mean by humanistic and how music fits into that approach. Absolutely. And still, with all the science we have, we're still more strongly situated in the shaman tradition than the bench scientist tradition when it comes to helping folks reach optimal, however that's measured, different clinical settings, different areas of medicine. Music, part of what we do that the Louis Armstrong Center for Music and Medicine is use music as a healing modality. It's a useful bridge or object to really emphasize some of the relationship and, and humanistic aspects. It, it does make it easier than just the stethoscope. It's a warm, inviting, participatory modality. So it does encourage what we already set out to do in some easier ways. So as an object, it's useful as a, as a tool, but also as the physiology of music on the brain and, and in the spirit is also a benefit here. Are you saying that there's a way to treat some of these mental illnesses without SSRI drugs, or is it a combination of both? Well, we actually call it music in medicine mm -hmm. rather right. than music okay. therapy because it's a broader notion of what is typically known as Music therapy, it's its a narrower concept, usually more of a support aspect. And also in the unfortunate hierarchies in, in healthcare, the music therapy tends to sit lower, unfortunately. I mean, the hierarchy is, is problematic in a lot of ways, but by reworking it as music and medicine, we also elevate it to... Be more recognized, probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, and on par with, with what we're doing in just good healthcare. When do you introduce music? Is it after the initial assessment? Well, yeah, we have a bifurcated system or a division of labor because it's hard for any one clinician 
to cover everything. Mine is a more psychiatric oriented intake. And then we have a, a music intake and we, we combine all the material. And that's using senior faculty who at the Louis Armstrong Center for Music and Medicine who come from the music therapy tradition. So it's, it's a broad medical and psychiatric intake as well as music intake to the point of actual participation. And that's another feature which nurtures the relationship aspect of this because the music is a communal undertaking. So the intake actually involves the use of music between the therapist and the patient. And that's inherently difficult, but it's also inherently connection-driven. Those are more participatory, is what you're saying, between the therapist and the patient? Well, a lot can be understood about the patient from musical choices that are made. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we have a we do it with all sorts of folks who are not musicians mm -hmm. because they have still musical reflexes with rhythm and melody. They have musical traditions they come from. And then there's also the physiological activity of music, brain activity that has has value. So, I mean, it's broad. We have a choir of stroke victims, folks who, who are compromised by stroke. They can't speak, but they can sing because mm -hmm. it's the contralateral aspect of the brain mm -hmm. that is running there singing. But then they can learn to pull away the melody and communicate using the singing center of the brain rather than the speech center. That would be a you know an example. But also we have a clinic where we treat musicians and performing artists who already have a sophisticated understanding of music. So with them, we're doing psychodynamic psychotherapy using music as a language shared by the clinician and the patient. So for example, if it's an instrument that's familiar or, or a genre of music, that might be the equivalent of a holding environment in you know calm, safe, port in the storm kind of approach in therapy, which is appropriate in times. But if we use an instrument that the musician doesn't know, you know, is not familiar with, or a genre of music or a type of music that's unfamiliar, it could, it could be a more provocative experience, not unlike taking a more provocative approach in a talk-based therapy mm -hmm. and generating all sorts of unconscious responses to that. So it's a true language that can be applied, and it's also a relationship building. It takes more, though, from the from the clinician. The notion of countertransference or what the clinician is bringing to the relationship that affects the relationship needs to be recognized under standard conditions. But it's heightened when you're sharing the music, when you're performing together. Mm -hmm. It's so much more revealing of the clinician. So there has to be not only sophistication on the on the musical end and on the psychotherapy end of things, but also a sophistication on the added involvement of the clinician with the patient and all that the, that manifests, all that that represents as it affects the therapeutic experience. And so the clinician has to be that much more aware of what he or she is adding into the mix since there is no such thing as neutral, but there's really no such thing as neutral when you're playing music together. Do you actually have certain kind of genres that seem to be more related to different conditions from depression to 
you know, uh, head trauma, schizophrenia. I mean, there's certain things that you make that judgment call that you've done research or how the brain, the dopamine and all that, how that reacts to certain genres. Yeah, that's an interesting point where we actually try to recognize physiological responses of different frequencies of music. Right. And there is some research on that. And we know a fetus in the womb responds to the frequencies of classical music mm-hmm. with a calming reaction when you read the fetal monitor differently than a rock and roll response. So there are some straight physiological insights that we can provide. And there is an attempt at trying to catalog actually how sound waves, as they change in different forms of music, have different physiological impacts. But when push comes to shove, the biggest aspect of this is that it's not just therapy and it's not just music, but it's music therapy in that we rarely use music outside the context of the live relationship. Mm -hmm. There is a tradition doing that. It's more of an ambient sort of therapeutic effect, you know, music at the bedside, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. or, you know, bring your five favorite CDs to surgery. There's plenty of research that shows the benefits of that sort of thing, but we're committed to taking it to a much different level where the therapeutic relationship is the core. And while the music has direct physiological aspects to it, the greatest impact comes by mixing that with the therapeutic relationship. And so it's always both in, that, in how we, we do it. So with, you know, like I say, the, the stroke choir, for example, those are not musicians. That's a, a just a general population of people. But we have plenty of folks, whether it's autism or pain syndromes, insomnias, uh, mental health issues, neurological disorders, substance abuse. It just goes on and on. Is there enough research being done in this area, do you think, or is this an under-evidence-based research area? Everything's an under-done <laughs> research area. We just actually were on the verge of starting at NEA, National Endowment for the Arts, grant-supported research on music and medicine, because again, it's a, a broader approach, music and medicine and depression. So that would be a structured music and medicine therapeutic in, in involvement in reproducible to, to measure depression response, all else held constant. Mm-hmm. No, clearly this is an area that gets much less support than uh, other modalities. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate, but there is also plenty going on. And there's a whole world internationally of clinic-driven, research-driven music and medicine or music therapy yeah, without going too deep into the, from a, a neuroscience point of view, what what happens? Uh, you know, I know the the word dopamine thrown around a lot, but what really happens in the neurobiological process with the brain? That and again, you know, what different genres for different type of conditions? What can you tell us, the listeners, what really happens to the brain when they hear these different types of music that has been you found helpful in the therapeutic process? Well, there is. As an input, as one of the sensory inputs, music activates sort of the entire brain in a way that nothing else does. Mm-hmm. And that alone has a remarkable potential. You see that in an obvious thing like folks with dementia who find great benefit from the, just hearing the music of their childhood, the familiarity and recall yeah. and takes them back. So you're activating all sorts of emotional networks, memory cognition, but also the mind-body interaction, so reductions in 
heart rate and blood pressure, the pain experience. So it's broadly activating and we can really channel that. In addition, no music lacks context. So music as ritual and music as lubricant for relationship comes with great context. And so tapping into the patient's own associations also has a, a an opportunity for a lot of the therapeutic work that we do. And you see some of that when you tell somebody, bring your five favorite CDs to surgery, but yeah. it's at a much more enhanced level when it actually informs a therapeutic relationship that builds over time. So at physiological levels, as well as sort of psychodynamic and interpersonal levels, we get to build a complex multifactorial combination therapy, in a sense, toward trying to move forward. And it's a powerful modality. Is Louis Armstrong at Mount Sinai one of the few centers or are there other centers across the country? How widespread is this and is it growing? There is a growing appreciation for the role that it plays. The Louis Armstrong Center of Music and Medicine is the largest clinical, hospital-based clinical practice in the country and that has a strong research piece and a strong training piece. But we're in the NICU. Mm. We're dealing with preemies and, and newborns, but again, integrated with uh, parents. We're in surgery. We're in pain and palliative care large role in oncology and in radiation oncology, in end-of-life issues and therapeutic aspects of trying to help people in late stages of cancer. We're in the school system using woodwinds to help kids with asthma regulate their breathing or kids with stuttering to regulate their anxiety and their breathing. We're in general surgery as a way of reducing anesthesia and calming vital signs related to surgery and to pain. It's just across the board. Do you see it is, as it spreads? Is it maybe there, for lack of a better phrase, some conventional doctors see it as a nice to have, or do you see it hopefully taking over? I know it's, you said it's uh, music therapy and medicine. Is there a way that we're working towards pulling the, the, the medication out of uh, the therapy? Or is it, it's, it's got a long way to go to prove that. Because I know there's a lot of people I know whose kids are on some kind of medicine for anxiety, depression, but yeah. the hope is to to stop that and take get them off that, and this could be a solution if it has that kind of impact. Yeah, I come I come at it from the other direction, which is to start with the, the gross shortcomings of a pharmacology only approach to uh, mm-hmm. dealing with this. The most reputable psychiatry research shows that it's only 30% of people with major depression who reach remission with an antidepressant medicine alone as the uh, properly dosed, adequate time, so, you know, used properly so that it's not issues of adherence or quitting the, the medicine. But given the medicine properly and taking it, the limits of technology have a 30% remission rate. There's not too many fields of medical care where where we would call that an overwhelming success. Right. And so the question isn't, is music valid or is more, more so music psychotherapy valid? The question is, is psychopharmacology alone valid? Right. And yeah. 
overwhelmingly proven to be limited. Mm-hmm. So the, we have all sorts of things that we look to do, the meditative aspects of, of, a, of a musical practice, the interpersonal and relationship mm-hmm. aspects Absolutely. of a musical practice, the psychotherapeutic aspects of a m- musical practice. You know, it's popular to talk about mindfulness, but actually mindlessness, getting out of the over-intellectualized, obsessive style that, that tends to dominate. And, and music provides a wonderful direct path to a very experiential, very emotional experience. We've been talking to a lot of other healthcare providers who are really kind of at a tipping point in their careers. They're starting to consider, I think, they're more open-minded than they were before in terms of alternative therapeutic approaches. They're trying to almost reinvent their practice of medicine. Yeah. And that's kind of what Medicine in America is all about. And I'm just wondering, maybe it would help those listeners. What led you to how you practice medicine today, integrative plus you know music? It seems like you really had a journey in terms of rethinking it. Could you share a little bit of that with our listeners? Yeah, sure. It's really about a broad, comprehensive approach. Most singular approaches come up short. There's things in addition to music and to pharmacology that we want as broad an approach as as we can do. I use longer sessions because I do more with patients in order to to build a comprehensive approach. But it's clear that music and medicine has a component there that really matters. From my own personal experience with a strong, well, a small but relevant history of playing music, but more being moved by it. And uh, in all sorts of ways that have larger cultural and and therapeutic payoffs, I was uh, a young doctor with the Navajo and the Hopi watching the the medicine man, the Navajo medicine man, do his thing in front of the lights and dials of a of a birth in the emergency room, and the power of narrative that he brought to to redefining the vision of self that allowed one to address one's own depression or one's own diabetes in relationship with the medicine mat as a as a Navajo patient was so profound to the credit of the Indian Health Service doctor, Western doc. He really had a a smooth relationship with the medicine man where where relationship mattered critically. The medicine man was was referred to where something in the in the sort of hardcore science of Western medicine predominated, the medicine man would refer. Somebody falls off the back of the truck or has a high fever, you know what? The medicine man is telling you go go see the Western doc. So it, there was a mutuality, but it spoke to the to the how the parts go together and the the relationship of the shaman with the patient who is committed to the relationship and to the modality was broad, but the musical piece was powerful and and critical. So did you shift gears at that point and say, I'm going to change the practice, I'm going to focus on music? Or did you have to go do additional research and or additional education to get to where you wanted to get? Early on, I was looking for and training in broad aspects of a richer relationship where that, yes, the science is powerful, but there's so many roles that the physician plays. And in the power of the relationship, the, sh- the shaman-patient relationship, the more I saw, the more I recognized our standard relationship as just another 
another working on that powerful therapeutic relationship of the medicine man, medicine person, <laughs> uh, and the patient that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And so with a commitment to being effective and also to enjoying what I do and, and committed to, to the pursuit of optimal and not just good enough because the stakes here are so high with what we do, tapping into this humanistic aspect, this shamanistic aspect is not just a complementary, it's core. It's just unfortunately not recognized enough as core. We hide behind the science in a way that allows us to be more distant, which only hurts the outcome, doesn't help it. It didn't take long to see how am I going to be that active, well-rounded shaman in in the dressed in, you know, a suit and tie coming to people in our cultural context, not not in the, the borrowed context of another of another culture, but there's a universal power to that doctor-patient relationship, that clinician-driven relationship that is so much more than just the science of it. It's also the power behind the the, 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 the science, in a sense, the, the suggestions that come with the prescription, not just the physiological activity of the prescription. In psychiatry, when push comes to shove, we cannot tell you really what's going on at a physiological level in the brain, the lesion mm-hmm. for any of the common illnesses, major depression, anxiety disorders. We can give general sense. We could talk in general senses, but down at the subcellular level. Yeah, molecular. And basically, we don't know. And we can't measure it well. Primarily, we measure by interview and the in the indirect measure of, of physiological activity through emotions, behaviors, and thoughts as indirect measures of what's happening at a physiological level. So we really don't know what is the source of the problem physiologically. And when you look in the fine print on the package insert of every medicine, in psychiatry at least, it says mechanism unknown. We have a gross sense of what they do, but we don't really down deep be able to, to see how how they generate progress. We know major depression is not a, a neurotransmitter problem. It's just that we use a manipulation of neurotransmitters to generate cellular changes that result in, in benefits. So it's like indigenous medicine in the sense that we spend the thousand years, let's say, in an indigenous culture observing this rash response to that plant. We're not sure why you get the rash. We're not sure why what the plant does, but we've been able to observe that if we give you this plant, it makes that rash better, but that other plant makes this this other rash get better. And that's what comes down to in psychiatry with the medicines that we're giving you, you in essence, it's a, a neuro, a, a psycho rash. We don't really know why you have it, and we, but we did figure out if we rub this pharmaceutical berry on it, it tends to get better, whereas another one, it doesn't. Isn't that when we're, I mean, we're, in my mind, we're in crisis mode of mental health today, right? I mean, no matter what statistics you want to look at, whether it's homeless situation in most of our major cities today, with most of them suffering from different psychiatric disorders, mm-hmm. what are we doing? What's going to change or make a shift in terms of the approaches? Can't just be, we're going to try the same thing over and over again. It can't be the same old, just like a. Uh, uh- continue to just give medication. I mean, you're obviously things are going in the direction of have to embrace new ideas because it's not working the way it is. You know, that's where I think innovation is important. Obviously, I have a little bias. I'm in digital innovation 
health innovation and there's apps now like calm which i'm sure you're familiar with with meditation and there's others out there and i'm not saying they're all best in breed but certainly to me they increase access to some type of beneficial health practice and if we could spread that and continue that innovation i just feel like it's like it's time for a change oh absolutely i think you look at it from several angles the angle of uh, clinician burnout if you enjoy the practice more if you're if it's a richness of relationship where you're really getting a a full spectrum of emotional and experiential rewards from the practice rather than uh sort of a cold distancing that that uh has limited success but also a ha- just leaves you a- as a technician we see f- flight at, at higher rates than ever from clinical practices I think you're talking about a sense of safety, which doesn't really exist today in a lot of communities. I mean, it, it, lack of safety, like it's hard to get enough to eat and and, and feel like you can pay the, pay right. the bills to right. keep the lights on, but also the sense of empowerment and creativity and collective efforts, encouragement of the loving relationship, not just romantic love, but... Right, of course. The shared glue for 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 any social order it's trivialized before we run out of time dr quensel if someone wants to consider integrative approach to psychiatry and or music therapy what resources can they find or how do they further educate themselves what would you say to them luckily obviously and you made reference to it we have more access to information than ever so it doesn't take much to be able to to research what exists in the community for different therapeutic approaches, art therapies and music therapies and psychotherapies of different types. Even just having a rich relationship with a primary care doc is a powerful way to gain an advantage in, in your own health care and in the healthcare care sy- system and, and a, a powerful relationship to, to build on. Is there a society or nonprofit that kind of focuses on this? The APA or? Yes. Well, yeah, that's They're big. limited. <laughs> yeah. The shortcomings of psychiatry as it's practiced in conventional ways, I could go on and on. I made mention before. So some of the conventional approaches to it can be limited, but most of the larger healthcare institutions have various sorts of art therapies, music therapies, and things you can you can find. The International Association of Music and Medicine, for example, is is an is an interesting one, but it's it's somewhat geared more in the research way than in tracking uh, clinical opportunities in every sort of corner of, of of America or corners of the world. But the modalities are available. You know, th- th- just the fact that you look at whether it's the dollar spent or the number of uh, clinical encounters that that fall into non-traditional, non-conventional treatments. There's so many, and you can speak to the specifics of what does one modality offer from one tradition, Chinese medicine versus chiropractic versus naturopathy versus music therapy versus go on and on and on. Yeah. And they have their unique qualities, but there's also a, a more of a of a collective message that is it, it's reflecting on the shortcomings that people experience dealing with the narrowest notion of the conventional 
healthcare system. If they were more satisfied, they wouldn't be looking as much or connecting as much or spending as much. So in some ways, unique modalities have their own their own unique features, but it's more about finding a way to feel engaged and and to feel uh, that you're that active agent on your own behalf. It can come from a variety of avenues, but it's worth going to find it. Yeah, absolutely. Todd and I are both music fans. We live our lives around music in a lot of ways. <laughs> and um, I was moved by your, I read something online about you're waking up in the ICU at a major medical center after uh, some surgery. Mm. And all of a sudden there was a Beatles song, Let It Be, which is one of my favorites. Yeah, it's hard to that was That was really <laughs> yeah. moving. Could you tell us just a quick nugget on that, what that was like? Yeah, it was sort of certainly confirms what we do every day to be on the other side of it on occasion. Uh, and in, in the haze of opiates and a wall of machines with lights and beeps and the gray steel coldness of right. the fear, weakness, and disempowerment of lying in that bed, hardly able to move in a post-surgical mm. situation to have my agency turned on, my heart turned on, my spirit turned on, mm-hmm. crack a smile, hum along, and connect with the live being behind that guitar, you know, sitting there was powerful and instantaneous and it sort of encapsulates in in this just narrows little experience about how deep in the science of care I was ICU and critical because I certainly don't have an an anti-science standpoint not at all it's brilliant what we can do but it's inherently limited and right. there couldn't have been a more poetic uh, emphasis or juxtaposition of this guitar player sweet thing singing let it be against the backdrop yeah. of the of the ICU and I should say that because there's that we don't have solid walls there was feedback from other patients but even more so from the nurses who take a beating wow. in the ICU right really hard work they rallied around so half of the backdrop for her was the lights and dials of the of the machines and that's poignant we have the coming together of these two different powerful aspects of the healing modality and the relationship against the backdrop of the hardcore science perfect combination but we also have uh, sort of the the other side of her was the the nurses circled around because they were so hungry for for avenues that allowed them to explore a broader way of practicing and to feel good about what they're doing and to be able to draw on more resource to bring to the patient and find the whole relationship, the whole undertaking of their clinical practice to be more meaningful and rewarding. Absolutely. Uh, Give them an avenue for expression that they don't otherwise have. One could say, at least figuratively, that my pulse slowed and my pain measures dropped and my breathing eased and my blood pressure uh, relaxed in response to the presence of the sort of singing angel. But the nurses are the ones who actually invited the music therapist to come back. Really? Yeah, they won. That's great. Wow. So, but, you know, the broad impact is just a, a great little example that speaks to a, a huge general 
I think that says it all. I really do. Thank you so much, Dr. Quinzel. We really appreciate it. Amazing. It's great. Yeah. Uh, Todd and I are, as I said, we love music. So this was something we were really interested in. Hopefully you will help spread this uh, and get other people to think about how to incorporate music in their practice. You want to give some information there if people want to donate? One can simply look us up on our website and it'll connect one to the opportunity to donate. The Louis Armstrong Center for Music and Medicine is built within the Mount Sinai healthcare system, but we sort of have our own freestanding presence and our own website. So you just look us up. Feel free to donate. That'd be great. Feel free to come. Feel free to call. <laughs> feel free to sing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Medicine in America. We have a lot more episodes coming, so please subscribe in your favorite podcast player and don't forget to rate and review the show. Also, please tell your colleagues and friends about it. I'd also like to give a big shout out and thank you to Dr. Stefan Quensel for joining us today and my co-host Todd Harrington. And a special thanks to you, the listener. I'm your host, Anthony Manson. Until next time. <music>